Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we are equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive and live well. So let's dive in. Welcome to our second episode. My name is Sarah and I'm joined as always with my incredible colleague, Lily. I want to start by saying thank you for coming back for our second episode. We're really excited to see where this podcast goes, um, how it evolves and how it develops by bringing you a new topic each week where we can jump in and discuss the topic um, and hopefully play a small part in helping you live a happier and healthier life. So Today's episode, we're going to start by going back to that first episode where we ended off talking about three little things or three things that you could look for. So we're going to start by chatting about them and then we'll get into today's episode. So Lily, do you want to talk us through those those three little things that we spoke about last episode? Last time we gave you three little things to take home uh, regarding observing um, ourselves. Number one, number two, a bit of neuro and number three, another useful little thing, I hope so. The first thing we asked was uh, regarding your pupil size, if you were in um, SNS, that sympathetic nervous system drive, so when you're excited and you're going out for a run or something something fun is about to happen, is your pupil size larger or smaller? So the answer is it would be larger. So our nervous system is then ready for action. There's dilatation of those pupils extra light is being brought into the brain and we're ready to, to go. So question one, our pupil sizes are larger. Second question we asked was homunculus, H-O-M-U-N-C-U-L-U-S. And this is actually a little cartoon character in our brains that represents the concentration of nerve endings in our bodies that are in the brain. And so we asked, really, which part of the body do you feel has the most uh, representation in the brain? So describing a little homunculus, this little person is uh, skinny, long arms, long legs, um, spine is quite thin as well. This little person has ginormous hands, and a huge mouth, huge lips, big teeth and gums. So you can imagine that those parts of the body uh, get the most um, nerve endings. And those of you who've had a really uncomfortable uh, filling down the dentist that just slightly too large, like just a shaving too large, will go home with a, a feeling of a, a boulder in, in your mouth. So those nerve endings are so dense and acute that it tells you that that little piece of filling in your mouth is just not quite the right size by a micron or two. <laughs> Number three. The sense that uh, we have that well, goes to the thalamus, which is uh, the relay station that goes to the brain. And so this sense goes straight to the brain unfiltered. And that sense would be your sense of smell. The olfactory bulbs that come up through your nose, the, the roof of your nose, are direct extensions of your brain. So they're the three little answers from last time's quiz. So um, Sarah's going to tell us a little bit about this episode's topic, Sarah. Yeah, cool. This episode, and that's going to tie really nicely into some of those three things that we, or that you just spoke about, Lily. So today's episode is all about primitive reflexes. Now, as chiros, we do a lot with primitive reflexes. We test them in in the kids that are coming through, but also in our older kids. 
Um, and so we thought we would dive into what primitive reflexes are, what you can look out for, how we might test them and, and how it, I guess, plays a part in our development, particularly as kids. So this week, after we picked the topic of primitive reflexes, I did a bit of um, market research, I guess you could say, with my patients in the clinic, but also the people that I spend time with, the people around me. And I asked them if they knew what primitive reflexes were. And a large percentage, if not all of them, knew or had heard of, should I say, primitive reflexes. They knew the words, they knew the term. But when I sort of started to dig a little bit deeper and ask them some more questions, they didn't or they couldn't tell me what primitive reflexes are, why we have them, and why they're important to assess in both their, you know, being present in, in our kids, but also as they develop and as they grow, that inhibition or that integration of that reflex and why that's important to be to be checked and what sort of, I guess, symptoms and behaviours and patterns might present in, in our kids when they're not integrating. So I'm really excited to talk about this topic because I think it's going to be quite informative for so many people um, around, I guess, how primitive reflexes work and, and what they actually are. So Lily, start us off by talking about what, what are primitive reflexes? Tell us. My only um, bugbear with this term is um, the word primitive, because when I hear the word primitive, I think of, um, well, you know, societies which are undeveloped or um, backward or so on. So sometimes I might use the word automatisms. So these are automatic things that happen within our nervous systems um, as we develop and grow. Now, you can Google the word primitive reflexes and, you know, or that term and come up with all kinds of great explanations. In fact, there are many, many YouTube videos on how to integrate these primitive reflexes. So what we're going to give you here today is actually our perspective. So, you know, once again, as it's been said in our first episode, this is not a prescriptive dialogue. You know, our podcast is simply just to bring to awareness the things we live with uh, on a regular basis and, and humanity and what we um, what happens to our brains as we, we grow and develop and age. And also hopefully for us to become a little bit uh, self-reflective because primitive reflexes, um, automatisms, they actually can tell us the state of our brain health. More on that later. So let's say, for instance, uh, primitive reflexes initially um, in a baby are very much survival-based. Sarah will go on to explain what they are. We'll, we'll run through about six of them. But many of these uh, automatisms are to make sure the organism lives and survives. A couple of these are to help the uh, child through the birth canal. So Sarah might go through those as well. But a lot of these uh, reflexes are to make sure the child can feed and make sure that somebody feeds the child. <laughs> So basically, um, the reason for the PMs are survival. So we might use the, um, the word, or the, um, let us now PM, because we're going to be using primitive reflexes a fair bit today. So today as well, we might use stories to describe um, how these PMs manifest, because usually um, you'll find uh, we understand things better when someone tells us a story and puts it into context. The other thing around um, PMs is that we would like them to be integrated or, or not present by certain times of the child's life. And Sarah will go on to describe, you know, an approximate time frame perhaps for these things. Now, as the child's brain or frontal lobes, the higher brain grows, these reflexes, which are largely brainstem, can then be attenuated or 
controlled or modulated to some extent. So they're not fully present, but can be if wanted to be. So in the end, it's actually uh, an example of free will, you know, and whether the child wants to use these reflexes or, or doesn't. So that will come with a more mature brain. Now, stealing a little analogy from our psychology profession, they often used a visual of a fist. So if you make a fist, but tuck your thumb inside a wrapped up four fingers. So you have a fist, your thumb is lying more or less horizontal, and all your four fingers are wrapped and over that thumb. That thumb can represent your brainstem, and the wrapped up fingers are your frontal lobes or your higher brain centers. So that would be ideal if you could have um, most of the time our brain centers the gardens of our frontal lobes. Um, every so often those frontal lobes fly away and our brain stems express themselves in full glory. So some of these primitive reflexes or PFs or traumatisms uh, will happen all through life. Um, but they are pretty obvious in a young, developed, uh, underdeveloped or developing um, baby brain. So once again, we want to make this um, quite simple and quite fun. Um, we will give you things to listen to, which are observations that you are more aware and we also become, as I said, more self-reflective. We also don't want to make this a, a very dry neuroscience-y course. And a lot of my colleagues listening to this, if they, if they were ever to listen to this, um, might cringe because they'll say, wow, have I, have I made this so simple and dumbed it down and even um, put a little white lie here or there? But I want to reassure my colleagues that I have done my reading. It's just that we want to make it reasonably uh, user-friendly and magazine, so to speak. So not at all dumbing it down, but we want to make it actually uh, today take home. So this is the style that we've taken to explain some of the more uh, complex issues of our health. Let's dive into the primitive reflexes. Yeah, let's. So, and, you know, you said that so well, these Primitive reflexes are very brainstem. Um, they come from the brainstem or they're controlled or mediated by the brainstem. And so it's it makes a lot of sense that as our frontal lobes develop through childhood or from you know being born through that those milestones and um, into adolescence and adulthood, it makes sense that these primitive reflexes would start to integrate. And that's that whole process that they're they're there. We have these reflexes, it's important to have them. We, they're useful for certain reasons and then we start to integrate them um, until they become completely integrated or inhibited. And we're going to go through a couple of the big ones that I guess we see quite commonly in practice, um, but also I guess some of the big ones that people may have heard of before. And as you said, we want to make it quite applicable and quite take home. So I'm going to mention quite a few things that you might notice in your kids, you might notice in yourself, you may have noticed in the past, and a couple of little things that you can do to help these primitive reflexes start to integrate um, as they go along. So we're gonna start with the morrow reflex, but before I get into specific reflexes, I just wanna really quickly touch on the facts or on a couple of words that, that I might use. So uh, I might use absent reflexes or absent primitive reflexes. That's just referring to that reflex not being there. That in itself is an entirely different thing. We talk a lot about retained primitive reflexes, but an absent primitive reflex is just as important. And that goes back to that survival mechanism you were talking about, Lily, that we need these, our babies need these reflexes for particular purposes. 
and we'll chat about those those purposes. I'll then sort of mention as well integrating or inhibiting these reflexes and that just means that process of them starting to integrate as our nervous system develops, our prefrontal cortex develops and these reflexes become just a normal part of of who we are and, and our emotions and our being. So they are you can't you know you're not going to be able to elicit them. They disappear. And lastly, a retained primitive reflex. And that just means that it is remaining. It is still there longer than what we would like. And then I'll touch on what some ways that we can, we can help these reflexes integrate or what you might notice when something is retained. So starting with the morrow reflex, and this is our classic startle reflex. It's our fight or flight mechanism or, or reflex in a, in a child. Now, the morrow reflex is quite cool because this will integrate. And I'll talk about when that, when we should see that, but as an adult, we still have a startle reflex, right? You know, if a, if a door slams and there's a loud noise, we're going to startle. We're going to go, you know, you know, take a breath in and and be a little bit startled for a second. So this one, I guess, doesn't necessarily fully disappear in regards to an adult startle reflex, but the moro reflex should definitely integrate. So making a difference there between obviously the infants, uh, infancy one, and um, there being a startle reflex at, in adulthood. So. As I said, it's the baby's fight or flight response and it's an involuntary protective movement or response to a sudden stimuli. So that could be auditory, it could be movement-based. And to test this in practice with, with, uh, with our kids, often you'll see someone sort of either holding the baby in a certain position and lowering them um, through quite a sudden stimuli and eliciting that startle response. And what we see is our hands coming up above our head or the baby's hands coming up above their head their hands are open or normally open and often might be accompanied by a quick intake of breath and often or possibly as well, the baby might start to cry. So I often do this one is the very last thing I do when I'm testing them on babies because they can get a little bit upset um, through that subtle response. It is present from not, around nine to 12 weeks in utero. So this is present way before these babies are even birthed into the world, which I think is really cool to think, you know, nine to 12 weeks, that's so early in that pregnancy that these reflexes are starting to be or are starting to develop. And we should see this integrate between two to four months. Um, now, obviously, there's a bit of a range there, and that's just so that we can keep an eye on things with kids and, and nothing is ever sort of on the dot perfect and each baby is different. So between two to four months, we want to see this start to integrate. Now, this reflex is, as I said, you know, it's that protective mechanism, it's that fight or flight, but it's also thought to or plays a part in assisting the baby through the birth canal and taking its first, first breath as it enters the world, which again is coming back to, to why it is sort of um, present in utero so early on. Now, this is a common one that we see or that I've been seeing particularly in kids coming into the practice and kids that I'm treating in older kids so not necessarily in, in little bubs as well but as kids kind of age and, and develop and I'm seeing a lot of sort of hypersensitivity or they're very easily distracted they're very sensitive to noise or certain movements around them that's that classic classic sort of hypersensitivity sort of picture um, the other things that the morrow uh, a retained morrow sorry should you might see is things like motion sickness poor balance or vestibular sensitivity that vestibular system being a little bit immature so to speak uh, and a little bit sensitive to the things around them. Things like hand-eye coordination, um, things like social immaturity, mood swings and anxiety as well. And that's such a prevalent thing in our kids. And this can all, the moro reflex or retain moro reflex can just play a part in all of these things. So by no means is the moro reflex the sole answer to any of these sorts of things that we might see in our kids, but it can definitely play a part 
And again, coming that's coming back to very brainstem orientated and that prefrontal cortex developing and, and that relationship there as well. If I bring it back to, to babies um, or to, to little bubs and infancy, a really great way to help, and this goes for most of the primitive reflexes, but particularly this moro reflex or this startle reflex, is that the floor is their natural playground. Uh, a lot of the time, or more often than not now, because we have access to all these different products and all these different toys and things for these for kids, they're, um, they're not spending enough time on the floor. They're not spending enough time sort of out of, I guess, certain carriers or bounces or all these fun products that we've got access to. You know, at times they can be great, but our kids aren't being on the floor enough. And I love that terminology of the natural playground. I think it's really cool. And when you can put a child on the ground or a baby on the ground, they're going to start to, they're going to be very curious. They're going to start to explore things and develop things. And that's a big part of how these primitive reflexes are going to start to integrate. And so, I, yeah, I love that. And I'm sure, Lily, I'm sure you're the same. I'm just not going to jump in here because I just, I just thought of a word and that's called grounding. Yeah. Isn't it funny how our language already has these concepts built into it, you know, and as adults, whenever we go and do a self-help meditation group, you know, the, the guru at the top there goes, oh, it's all very grounding, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. But as you say, Sarah, you know, these kids are meant to be on the ground and maybe as adults, you know, we need to use the word ground a bit more. And then those when you were describing the Moreau, I also had this image of, um, inverted commas, a deer in headlights. Mm. So, you know, you get a lot of adults who are always deer in headlights and sometimes this disguise it very well, but you can almost see their body go into Moreau quite quickly. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. That was a great one. I like the, um, the PM of the Moreau. Yeah, it's a good one, isn't it? And it's, yeah, yeah and like, as you just touched on then, it's one that we, you, you can see in adulthood, in adulthood mm. still, right? Like, you, you might have kids or adolescents or even young adults come in who are, you know, have those anxious tendencies mm. or are quite sort of in that fight and flight um, sort of state all the time. And yeah, I think testing this morrow mm. reflex um, and you can test it a few different ways as kids sort of get older and, you know, you're not necessarily going to hold their head or hold their body in a certain way to, to test it. But yeah, it's a good one to to I think as a component of of the whole picture mm. um, but particularly in that sort of yeah hypersensitivity nice. and yeah. Um, anxiety sort of picture which is cool so that's the startle of the Moreau reflex and I'm gonna jump now into the Palmer reflex and I'm gonna do the Palmer reflex and the rooting reflex together but also separately and you'll understand why in a second but to Go into that. I'm going to go back to the homunculus lily that you spoke about at the beginning of the episode. Mm. And we spoke about the mouth and the hands having, mm. you know, the, the biggest kind of representation in that cartoon picture. And there's, there's a reason why, right? You know, we need our hands for all of our fine motor things and our lips and we need those sensations. But these two reflexes, the palmer and the rooting reflex, come, come into that um, hand in hand. So to speak. So to speak. <laughs> exactly right. So... The Palmer reflex, and this is one everybody will know, even if you, you know, don't have a baby yourself or haven't been around babies. But if you put something in a baby's hand or you stimulate that palm, they're going to grab it. You know, whether it's hair, a hand, a finger, a rattle or something into that hand, they're going to naturally reflex. They're going to close that palm. They're going to grasp onto it. I guess that one of the purposes of this reflex is for, for that baby to be able to cling to mum or cling to a parent. Again, coming back to survival, we need... Uh, as a baby, we, we are dependent on uh, the people around us to help us survive. So it's that grasping reflex, being able to grasp onto to mum. And as I said, it has a direct link to the rooting reflex. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. But that's, yeah, it can be a really fun thing to talk about. It is present or it emerges at 11 weeks in utero. Again, really early on in, in pregnancy. 
and it should be inhibited or we should start to see it integrate between two to three, possibly up to four months um, in our babies. And some of the, I guess, signs of, of a retained palmar reflex is that difficulty or that um, delay in their fine motor skills. So things like pen grip, things like handwriting, so um, the state of their handwriting and their, their pen grip is, is two of the big things. And you might, we often hear of kids going to OTs to, to help with this, with their handwriting skills, being able to grip properly. And it comes back to that palmar reflex, you know, being able to grasp that grasp needs to develop into our pincer grip. It needs to develop into those more fine motor movements of the hand. So then we can, we can write, we can pick up a pen, we can pick up certain other things of those fine motor skills. So yeah, some of those things, you know, your, your difficulty or your delay in those fine motor skills, it might be um, throwing and catching a ball, or it might be the handwriting, as I said, the, the pen grip, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and again, coming back to how we can help integrate this in a young bub, in a, in a little bub that's not handwriting or not writing, so to speak, it's things like stimulating that palm, you know, playing with that palm, getting them used to new sense, like sensory things in that palm, um, stimulating the muscle spindles in, in that palm as well. That's going to feed back to that brain to help integrate that reflex. Other things, you know, when kids, when little bubs get to that age of crawling, you know, putting that, that load through their hands as well, propping them up onto their hands and knees and helping them load through their hands because challenges in, they may also see challenges in crawling if that palmar reflex isn't quite integrated. Again, playing on the floor, putting them on the floor, letting them crawl around or letting them feel the floor at least, you know, those different senses. In older kids, we might use things like sensory bins. So you might, you know, fill up a bucket with all different sorts of things in the bucket that have different textures and different things so they can pick them up in their hands, they can feel them, they can grip them or scrunch paper or, or do different tactile things with those hands to help integrate um, integrate that reflex as well. And another really cool thing that actually a patient taught me, this is a, the mother is an OT and she gets her kids to, when she makes cookies, they physically get their hands mm. into the cookie dough and they're squishing and kneading this dough yeah. and then rolling the balls yeah. up and putting them on the tray and flattening them down. I thought that was a really mm. great sort of activity. We used to get our kids to actually help in the housework yeah. and making it a game. <laughs> you know, here's a broom, you know, this is really good for your kids. So anyway, giving them real yeah. um, sort of motor skills that we, will probably be useful in terms of, uh, well, look after a household one day. But one thing I will say is that what we're observing is that a lot of kids are not able to differentiate all their different fingers sometimes. I know it sounds really silly, but there's so many kids now growing up with iPads mm. and touch screens. In fact, it came to me one day several years ago when I saw a little toddler waiting for me to be adjusted in the reception. She was actually looking at a magazine and spreading her fingers outwards on the magazine cover, trying to make the image change. And I thought, wow, she doesn't know how to turn a page. And that made me feel a little bit sad, I will say. So I guess we're looking for children using their fingers, but in a very differentiated manner. So as much variety as possible. Variety, big time. And it's that classic thumb to finger and going through the hand as well, making those O shapes and not having that, you know, that flat mm. finger, you know, being able to really make that, that O shape um, from finger to finger. And that, I guess, yeah, beautifully comes into being able to turn a page in a book. And using real tools, say, in a mechanical set rather than building it looking at a screen where you have a finger that drags an, an item to build that truck. It would be great if your kids could actually have a real screwdriver in mm. his or her hands or a hammer, you know, 
or a broom, whatever yeah. it is. I love that. I think pushing the housework bit. Yeah, I, that, I love that. I think I think yeah. parents are going to love that that tip. Okay. Just get kids to do the housework. I think right. that's right. that's really cool. So I'm going to fall into the rooting reflex, and I, I mentioned before that they're related, and they very much are related. And you might notice in kids who are writing, or they might be playing sport. And they've got their tongue out of like they've got their tongue hanging out of their mouth, or they're doing some weird sort of tongue in their cheek, or there's these different things happening in the mouth as they're trying to do things with their hands. And that there's a direct link between the palmer reflex and this reading reflex. And again, we go back to the homunculus with that representation of the mouth and the hands being so large. So the reading reflex is you know you stroke from the corner of the baby's mouth up the cheek, and they will turn their head to that side, mouth open. And they're looking for the breast. They're looking to be able to feed. So this one emerges from 24 to 28 weeks in utero. So a little bit later in the pregnancy. And touching on that point, if we're looking at kids who are born quite premature um, around this sort of time, this might be a reflex that can be absent. um, And there needs to be some work done there as well. So just an interesting point to kind of throw in there. And this one, the rooting reflex, we should see integrated or inhibited around three to four months. So it's that classic stroking of the cheek. The baby will turn its face with its mouth open, anticipating a feed or looking for that breast to be able to feed. Now, when we're talking sort of retained reflexes um, or retained rooting reflex, we might see things like some real sensitivities around these kids' mouths. They might have some speech impairments or some difficulty with certain words. They might have difficulty swallowing and they might be really sensitive to some food textures, which I thought was really interesting that this as a retained primitive reflex could could come into that. And I guess then we could go into chewing and all that sort of stuff to develop that, um, you know, that mouth also sensation, but textures, but also biomechanically with that movement through the jaw as well. So as I said, it's related to the palmar reflex. And so our hand movements are directly affecting our speech and our speech directly affecting our hand movements. And it's that classic example, like I said, of a kid running around on a sporting field, throwing a ball or trying to hand write, and they've got their tongue out of their mouth or their tongue sort of pressing really far into one cheek um, without even knowing that they're doing it, right? They're often very unaware that that's what they're doing, but it's um, often something that we can observe very much in the people around us. So you can look out for that one. Um, But to, to help integrate this one, we want to be, again, same sort of thing as the palms, stimulating those palms. We want to be stimulating that cheek, chewing uh, in our mouth as well, on both sides of our mouth to help stimulate that, those muscles to be able to take over and, and do what they need to do. So then moving into the last two that I want to talk about. Um, so the first one, the ATNR, which stands for asymmetrical tonic neck reflex. To test this one, we often have bub lying on their back and we're turning their head to one side. And on that same side, we should see an extension or a straightening of their arm and leg and a flexion or a bending on the opposite side. So the side that they turn their head to, they're going to extend. And on the opposite side, they're going to, they're going to flex or, or curl in. Now, this one is present from 18 weeks in utero and should start to integrate or should be integrated around that six-month mark. So a little bit later than the other ones that we've discussed so far. Now, this one's really cool, or I like to think of this one. Um, it's very sort of movement-based, obviously, that, that extending of the arm, bending of the other one, uh, and same in the legs. And it really it plays a big part in the movements that we feel when they're in the womb, when they're in utero. So the kicking sensations, um, that movement, um, that yeah, that kicking, and it's imp- and a really important part for that reason of the birth process as well. So helping the baby come through that birth canal and get through as well. So 
yeah, this one, again, a couple of things if we're talking about retained primitive reflex, we might see some crawling challenges. So, you know, if if that reflex is retained, the, we, these, we might see these kids commando crawling um, or propping them on their elbows instead of up onto their hands and, and doing that um, cross crawl pattern. They might just bum shuffle, they might not crawl, or they may not crawl at all, they may just walk. Um, so different crawling challenges, we may also see poor hand-eye coordination. And again, it comes back to not only that midline pattern, um, but being able to, to move those arms um, without that reflex sort of taking over in, in the position of, of those upper and lower limbs. We might also see trouble reading and writing and also that sort of left to right picture as well. So reading from left to right, writing from left to right, that comes back into that hand-eye coordination as well. And another big thing on that same pattern of reading and writing is mixing up, consistently mixing up our letters. So like your B and your D, for example, getting that back to front and that's consistent and that's beyond the age of kids who are learning to, to handwrite because of course kids are going to stuff up letters and change them up and, and do things as they're learning them but it's that that idea of beyond that point um, consistently mixing up these letters. We're just jumping in I just want to say and Sarah and I are both on the same page regarding this that we work in a multi-disciplinary approach. So we're both chiropractors. However, we do have a lot of people who we refer to, OTs, we have optometrists, uh, pediatric physios, nutritionists, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. psychologists. So, you know, one child will not benefit just from one approach. You know, that child probably needs to have a few different people look at that person and see what that child actually needs from, from each person. So more on the chiral approach later. Mm -hmm. I just want to jump in here and say that we do work with other professions because we really feel that um, we should understand our own scope of practice yeah. and stay in our lane, really, and recognise who our colleagues are, who would most benefit uh, our little children and babies. Mm. Mm. And that's, you know, that's a great point because obviously each child is going to be different as well. And because we have one retained reflex doesn't mean they're all going to be retained. In saying that, you know, when we look at a specific case or a specific child, they're going to have different needs. So things like behavioural optometrists, OTs, working with chiros, functional neurologists, all of those things come together to fit the picture for that particular person. Mm. Um, and I think it's a really great place to be when, as you said, we're working together in conjunction with a, a multimodal, I guess, approach with in terms of practitioners. And that, you know, you can see that in some of these signs and symptoms of these retained reflexes when you've got that visual, you know, visual challenges, you might have the crawling, that more biomechanical change, you might have that handwriting. And just in that particular case, you can go, right, there's a place there for some OT therapy, with some visual visual therapy and some chiro or some um, pediatric physiotherapy as well, which um, again, you know, brings us back to a really great picture of that being a multimodal approach, which I think is really cool. The last one I'm going to chat about is um, the spinal gallant reflex. Now, this one is really cool because it is plays a big part in helping the baby come into the world, it coming through that birth canal, and it helps them wriggle through that birth canal. So, what it is is it's um, I'll explain it in terms of how I test it, which I think will make a little bit more sense. But you might have the baby on their on their tummy, and you're stroking along their paraspinals, which are on the uh, on either side of our spine um, in that lumbar or low back area. So you're stroking on either side and looking for that reflex where on the side you're stroking, you'll get a um, contraction on that side. So their their upper body and their lower body will kind of contract or come together on that side. 
and on the other side as well. So testing it um, both sides. And it's that exact wriggle motion of wriggling through that birth canal. And it's stimulated, obviously, as they're coming through that birth canal by being you know, touched or stimulated in that area, but also through our contractions when we're giving birth, helping stimulate that reflex to literally help wriggle that baby through that birth canal, which I just think is so cool, right? Like, so isn't that cool, yeah. awesome so cool. that our bodies are designed like that from that age and just work so beautifully together mm. to assist that process, yeah. right? Very cool. Yeah, so cool. Um, so this emerges at about 20 weeks and it's inhibited around three to nine months. This is also an interesting one in how it presents as a retained reflex. And there's some really interesting research that has been done in the past, but also continuing to develop in two big areas of um, how this reflex might be retained. And that's in bedwetting because that area helps stimulate or stimulating that area plays a big part in urination. And also the other one is scoliosis. And this comes into um, that possibility of having a retained reflex on one side versus the other possibly. Um, and as I said, there's some really cool research to, to discuss this retained primitive reflex in you know, those two settings, bedwetting and um, in the presentation of scoliosis as well. We might also have other things like trouble crawling or walking if this, if this reflex is maintained um, or retained, sorry. They can't sit still, that, that really wriggly or fidgety kid that as soon as that low back area is sort of touching on the back of the chair or stimulated, they're wriggling. And it, again, we can put that right back to that birth canal process. That's literally what it's there for. Um, and so you might get a kid that's a bit fidgety or wriggly or, or can't sit still is that classic term that they use to describe it and difficulty concentrating as well. And it comes back to that wriggly sort of, of uh, motion as well. One of the really cool exercises that I love giving kids that I'm seeing in practice is doing snow angels on their back, right? You get them on the floor, they're doing that snow angel. So they're directly stimulating that area, but helping sort of, yeah, do that next level of, of control, I guess, mm. over that reflex. But yeah, a super interesting reflex. Very interesting. And also bringing into our dialogue here the, the words or, or the um, acronyms ADD and ADHD, as Sarah said, some kids simply can't sit still. And once a label is used, um, guess what? You know, there's also a medication to go with it. However, put those kids somewhere in the bush playing with a particular item they love and we do not see any attention deficit at all. You know, that child is so engaged in whatever task he or she is engaged in. So, yeah, I mean, not saying ADD and ADHD don't exist. It's just that there are some other factors as to why kids fidget. Yeah, exactly. And it, that comes back to, you know, no one reflex is responsible for, you know, all these conditions, mm. um, but they play a big part, right? And mm. if we can assess these reflexes in, you know, in these kids that, um, that might have been given this, these diagnosis, if we can help that mm. reflex integrate yeah. and be and take that kind of out of the picture for them, um, you can see some really amazing benefits to that mm. and changes in their behaviours and their ability to, to function optimally. And also just to say um, the spell angels exercise, I mean, that's, of course, as you know, Sarah, it's one of thousands of mm. things that um, mm. are available. And we don't want to step on any toes here because there are many OTs out there who do things um, very well and very differently. We just have a Cairo approach to, to things, of course, which are really peculiar to the way we do things in our practice as well. So we're not going to go into the ins and outs of how we manage babies, et cetera, et cetera, because it's also... Um, it's like a concierge style approach. Everyone's different, but we respect all the other colleagues who work with PMs and much as we do. And as I said, once again, we have a very particular approach that we find works really well. Mm -hmm. And these are kind of things that you can have a dialogue with, with us personally, you know, through our various 
uh, Facebook page or Instagram or speak to your very own pediatric chiro because they will explain what the approach actually is. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of a good place to wrap it up. Talking about those particular reflexes is um, we do yeah, want you to seek your own practitioners or if you want some referrals, please reach out to us. And we're more than happy to chat to you about that because as we alluded to before, every child is different. And sitting here recording a podcast, we don't know the specific needs of your particular child and what, what their situation looks like. So please do yeah, contact your practitioners and, um, and they will put together a, a treatment plan and, and treatment specifically for, for how your child presents. But yeah, they're sort of the, the couple of reflexes that um, we see commonly and are a big part of functionally, how, how we function, but also neurologically, how we develop. Um, and I think one of the big things is if we don't have that on-off mechanism of these reflexes, that you know, presentation, that, that integration or the inhibition of that reflex, we don't have that. We're not getting that next level of those neural networks being developed and that next level of, as we spoke about before, that frontal cortex developing in those sort of that progressive sort of development. Um, and so when we, when we have these retained primitive reflexes or we have multiple of them, we can see these neurodevelopmental delays and um, mm. certain things in our kids as well. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of space for, for these reflexes to play a part in, in treatment and in development of our kids as well. Following up to that, that was a great explanation, Sarah, of uh, PMs. And as we know, it's not an exhaustive list. You know, there are another at least 12 that we could have spoken about, but these are the most common ones. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose easy to test at home if you really wanted to. But I guess the big take-home message today really is, is how to build a good brain, you know, and in our first podcast, we did bring up the fact that a lot of language these days are to do with battlegrounds, you know, fighting things, suppressing things, eliminating things. So she lost her fight with something or other. So we wanted to give a perspective which was more about peacekeeping and, and how to have a, a peaceful nervous system. You know, can we not go to war, please? But to do that, we have to actually learn how to build a, a healthy nervous system. So we learn how to think, not what to think. And this will be one of the themes that we will probably come up with um, on a very, really regular basis. Now, just leashing on from the primitive reflexes, and this is a little bit unkind, but it has to be said anyway, <laughs> that is, as we go into our old age, some of these reflexes do reappear. So, you know, strangely enough, the developing brain and the brain going to demise uh, can look quite similar. So it's almost like a book that you can fold in half and they, they may meet up, unfortunately. <laughs> So hopefully I will be gone before I begin dribbling, you know, or wearing a nappy. But besides that sort of extreme case, there are some things that we may begin to do again. And some of the research is actually in straight out stroke research. Uh, stroke research. So in frontal lobe strokes, we often see people regain the, uh, the grasp reflex mm. so they cannot prevent themselves from grasping. So they're the kind of very simple things. The other thing that may happen is that we begin to tongue thrust again. So once again, you might see, unfortunately, some friends when you're talking to them, they begin to uh, tongue thrust again. And there are other, there are probably three other things that we might discuss at the end that will this will bring up primitive reflexes once more. But I do want to say too that there are so many ways of managing our nervous systems going through life and down the line we might discuss embryology and why this is important because there's generally a saying in, in neuroscience that is neurons that fire together wire together and Sarah did bring up words like multimodal approaches and that's 
all going to be dealt with in one of the episodes as well. So building a good brain, number one, as babies going into uh, school-aged children, into teenage years, but then also trying to maintain that, that great nervous system, if possible, going right through life. And the chiropractic principles that we work with do, do address this directly. Let's say we have a couple of take-homes, Sarah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What, what, what do you reckon? Well, yeah, so we thought with our little three take-homes or three little things that you can kind of look for or, or reflect on, I guess, um, at the moment, we would tie it back into what we're talking about today. So some of these primitive reflexes, some of these sort of nervous system-based things, I guess. So that first one I'll touch on is, Lily kind of alluded to it then, but is that sort of sucking reflex or that, that um, yeah, <laughs> I, I can't do it without, I can't describe it without doing it, I guess, yeah. but... Um, yeah, it, you'll hear it in people. And now once we've said it, you'll hear it in people speak, but it's that that sucking or that that reflex in, um, with the tongue on the top of the, the roof of the mouth. Um, so that's the first one. What's our second one we've got there, Lily? Uh, we've got facial stuff. So um, lots of blinking or excessive blinking or really tight blinking. I know we see it a little bit in, in kids as well, but I guess with adults, there's you know plenty of space there for people to see it in adults mm. too, right? Facial dystonias, yeah. yeah. So you'll see people usually that excessive blinking, but also uh, the, the simple frown, but not where you may need it all the time. So as Sarah said, the whole sucking thing. Now, it's different if we intentionally want to make that sound. So we're saying, oh, poor love. That's rather intentional. <laughs> good. That's a good point, actually. Yeah. yeah. And our third one, yeah, chewing. So a couple of things here. Chewing, yeah just in general, chewing left and right, but also I feel like we, we don't chew enough. So mm. chewing, you know, if we're talking food, um, how much are we chewing? How off, like how much are we actually chewing that particular food and are we chewing left and right? Mm. So a lot of uh, dentists in the area and orthodontists will, will clearly agree with us with this one, that is we have such small jaws compared to the number of teeth that we need to house these days. And a lot of it's because those maxillary mandibular muscles aren't being exercised from a young age food is so sloppy and there's so many kids who are mouth breathers and and uh thumb suckers so if we can we'd like kids to start chewing um, from as early as possible and most of the parents who bring their kids here will hear me say you know get a lamb cutlet bone clean the meat off if you don't want them to have meat give them something real to chomp on and kids will naturally want to put things in their mouth and shove it from right to left and beyond. So chewing is really important. Um, most orthodontists will agree with that. We do suggest a particular appliance that we won't actually go into here, but we would like kids to start chewing from a very young age. As, as adults even, can we see for ourselves if we chew more on one mm. side than the other? There are many reasons why we choose to, but if you don't have any real pathology it would be good for adults to start chewing again both right and left evenly yeah mm. amazing awesome so that i guess kind of wraps up the episode quite nicely talking all things primitive reflex touching on i guess the foundation of that nervous system as well and as you said building healthy nervous systems so that we can live optimally and live out our healthiest and happiest lives as well so yeah i guess that wraps up episode two See you next time. Thank you, guys. A quick disclaimer. These episodes are not intended to replace help, treatment or advice from your healthcare professionals. 
The information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your concerns.